0: Amen, church. Uh, So, so very good to um, be with you this morning. Would be so much better if you were here in the room, of course, but uh, we're grateful for the opportunity to be here and to continue on in our series in the book of Jonah. Hopefully you've got your Bible with you and open to Jonah 3. But let's start with a proverb. Let's start with a proverb. Proverbs 7, 19. As in water face reflects face, so the heart of man reflects the man, so the heart of woman reflects the woman. In other words, uh, your heart is the real you. Whatever you project on the outside, that's not the essence of who you are. And the challenge in in. The past several years has been that social media has really exacerbated a problem, a deep-seated problem that human beings have had since the beginning of time. To project something that we're not. To wear a mask, to go through the motions, to pretend we're someone we're not. In fact, you look at social media and you see the photographs that that people often uh, put up on social media platforms. It's got to be just the right angle and just the right lighting and use just the right filter and have just the right caption to project what we want to project, but isn't necessarily what's true about us. We write captions, we post photographs that project our awesomeness. But is it really our heart? Your heart, what's inside, that's... Who you really are. And that's what's so critical for us as Christians to understand. We we see what God thinks about all of this in 1 Samuel 16.7. We'll get to Jonah soon, I promise. 1 Samuel 16.7, the Lord sees not as man sees. The man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart, you can see the theme that's developing here, and that relates to Jonah 3, because we're going to see the prophet in chapter 3 doing what God has commanded him to do, finally. Outward compliance, we're just going to call that outward compliance, but almost completely devoid of a heart commitment to the mission that God had given to him. And that's not at all what God wanted from Jonah, it's not what God wants from us. God sees not as man sees. God looks at the heart. And so here's what we're going after in Jonah 3. This is in your notes. It's on the screen. God wants his children to show wholehearted devotion, not half-hearted compliance to his word. And so let's look at Jonah 3. I'm going to read these uh, 10 verses. The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself in sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them. And He did not do it. Well, in order to show wholehearted devotion to God, that's what we're going after here. Several things need to be true of us. First of all, we need to listen to what He says. Listen to what God says. Now, verse 1 of chapter 3, this is the Groundhog moment, Groundhog Day moment in the book. And I don't mean, you know, February 2nd Groundhog Day. I mean the movie Groundhog Day because we're getting a repeat of what we saw in chapter 1, verse 1. The whole thing is starting over again. He's getting, Jonah's getting a redo just like Bill Murray got a redo. If we were setting this up in a movie, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, Um, Jonah would be laying in bed. The clock radio would switch over to 6am and I got you, babe, would be playing on the radio. This is his do over. Notice it says, and the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. He's being given another chance. This is God saying, once again, I'm going to give you the mission and see if you do it. And I just want to pause right there and just think, because I wonder how many times I've heard like the same sermon point, I've read the same principle of Scripture in a book I've been reading, or someone says it to me in conversation. How many times have I heard things over and over again and yet refused to respond in obedience to God. The reality is God's long suffering with us is the stuff of legends. God's relentless mercy, which is what we're talking about really in this series, God's relentless mercy and patiently waiting for us to finally hear what He says, believe what He says, and do what He says. And You can't talk about all of this and not immediately think about James chapter 1. Take a look at just a couple of verses here. Verse 22 starts out, be doers of the word and not hearers only, James writes. When you do that, you know, when you're a hearer only, and you don't actually do the word. James says, you're deceiving yourselves. You're lying to yourself because on the outside, you're projecting. I'm a Christian. I brought my Bible to church. I'm here. I'm listening to the word. Look at me. But you're not actually doing what you heard. And so you're just lying to yourself. You're lying to others. Verse 25 continues, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, speaking of the word of God, and perseveres, sticks to it, does what the word says, endures in the principles of God's word, being no hearer who forgets. But a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And this is the the moment. This is the, you know, James chapter 1, but this is Jonah chapter 3. This is where Jonah's standing right now. He's heard the word. But will he do it? God says to him again, verse two, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Now, I want to commend those of you who are watching this right now. I had a conversation with someone who's, I would just say, like connected to our church, uh, would consider uh, themselves to be part of this church family, but who just said, like, the pandemic has been such that I just haven't even been going online. I just can't bring myself to do it. I'm too distracted when I do it. I really need us to be back together in person in this place. And my heart for that, I I ache for that person. I understand it. I don't like being alone in the building here right now. I wish you were all here. I wish we were together. But I want to commend those of you who are watching this right now, who are engaging in 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 worship and and together in this virtual sense of that, and you have your Bible open right now. You're on the live stream as, as limiting and as inadequate as this is, but you're taking this seriously. You're not you're not just checking the church box, you're still attending your small group as much as you now hate Zoom. You're still spending time with Jesus and his word as often as you can. And you're not doing it because it's some religious ritual that you feel obligated to do. You're doing it from the heart. You're doing it because you want to. Because it's who you are. I mean, this pandemic has been 15 months of sorting out who is doing all of this from the heart. And who is just going through the motions? In other words, who's really, who's really listening to God through this time? Who's taking this seriously? Whose heart is all about listening to the Word of God? And that obviously relates closely to what we'll see next. Wholehearted devotion to God is also do what He says. Again, this is what we heard in James chapter 1, having heard once again God's command to go, Jonah arose, this is verse 3, Jonah arose, but this time, instead of going down to Joppa, getting on a boat and trying to flee, he actually went to Nineveh, and it says there, according to the word of God, God told him, so he's doing it, and this sounds good. We can, we can say at this point in the narrative as we're reading through it, good for Jonah, he's finally obeying God. But one commentator wrote that you know, Jonah was silent. If you go back to chapter 1, he was silent in his disobedience. He didn't tell anybody he was going to disobey. He didn't talk to God about it, just quietly heard what God said and then went down and got on the boat and went in the opposite direction. He was just quiet about it. So this commentator said, Jonah was silent in his disobedience the first time, and he was silent in his obedience the second time. Jonah said nothing about this. It's not like there's some prayer where he goes, oh, Father, I'm so grateful for the way that you have called me. Help me to be faithful to your calling. There's nothing, none of that. He's silent now in his obedience. And so on the one hand, we can commend Jonah for finally obeying, but there's a concern here that he's not doing it with the right attitude. His heart is not in it. But that said, let's, let's just, for the time being, give him the benefit of the doubt. Let's focus on the positive. He listened to what God said. He's now doing what God said, and that on its face ought to be commended. And so if we can just come up to that point and say, as you listen to the Word of God, as you hear it every week, as you read it for yourself, are you doing what God's Word says? Are you applying the Word of God when you hear it? If God is saying to you through His Word and all of the ways that we hear the Word of God, we can hear sermons, we can read books, we can hear testimonies, you can, you, can, you can hear the Word of God, obviously, in your own time with the Lord. You can hear it in worship music that you might be listening to. Hear about other people talk about their walk with Christ. Conversations you might have in small groups. We hear the Word of God. And the Lord is saying, maybe I want you to do this. Or I want you to stop doing that. Or I want you to understand this thing about me. How are you getting that done? How are you applying that in your life? How is that becoming your reality, your heart reality, not just outward observance, but a heart reality? You know, one thing that's curious to me about the book of Jonah and what's presented here is how solitary Jonah's life is. We see no one else speaking into his life except maybe the sailors tried to do that on the boat he doesn't wait around long enough to talk to any of the Ninevites but he has no other believers certainly in his life who are speaking to him there's no there's no Aaron to Moses there's no Jonathan to David there's no Elijah to Elisha there's no 12 disciples doing life together There's no mentor. There's no accountability person. There's no partner in the faith. There's no friend to speak into his life. Now the Christian life is hard. Don't let anyone tell you any different than that. The Christian life is hard. And it's so much harder. And this is a word for where we're at right now. It's so much harder when we isolate when we remove ourselves from fellowship, when we don't let others in, when we're not authentic, when we're not transparent, when we're not vulnerable with each other. And especially with those who are closest to us. So do what he says and do it. Here's my my best counsel coming out of this. Do it with others who are doing what the word of God says. Doing what God says. Now, I say this because the suspicion we have is that Jonah's motives and his attitude are off. And that plays out in what we see next. We've already said this multiple times, but put your heart into what he says. Yes, it's good that you listen to the word. Yes, it's good that you're obeying the word. But is your heart in it? Put your heart into what he says. Now, there are indications here that Jonah's doing what he's been told by God, but his heart just isn't in it. Verse 3 continues. Now, Nineveh, we just get this note. It's a demographic, geographic note about Nineveh. It's kind of, kind of information that if you were, you know, at the time you were to look up Nineveh on Wikipedia, this is the kind of detail you'd get. Nineveh was an exceedingly great. It's just a big city. In fact, so big, take you three days to kind of get around it. Now, the thing about Nineveh at this point, and I believe I said this in the first message, Nineveh is not at this point the capital. It's not the capital of the Assyrian Empire at this point. The Assyrian Empire has not risen to the apex of its power. But still, it's an exceptionally large city. And this info is given because of what the author says next. Why is it so important that we know how big of a city, Nineveh is. Well, verse four starts out this way. So Jonah arrives at Nineveh. Jonah began to go into the city. It goes about a day's journey. We've already found out that the city is three times larger than that. But he kind of wandered in, went kind of like not even bothering to go to the heart of the city, but about a third of the way in. And he stops and he says, hey, you know what? It's far enough. This is good enough. I'll just start preaching here. And he preaches this little message. And then that's it. And the message is is recorded, apparently in its entirety, in the latter half. It doesn't even get a full verse, just in the latter half of verse 4. Here's what he preaches. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. I mean, that's the whole sermon. I mean, imagine if you came to church this morning and 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 the whole sermon was, this is the whole sermon. I just walk up, good morning harvest. In about a month and a half, you're done. That's the whole sermon. You know, you are loved, off you go. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. I, I take, I take, on an average week, 12 to 15 hours to put one sermon together between my pre-study and putting an outline together and reading the commentaries and writing and rewriting and then, and then working on it again before I preach it. Now, I can't imagine it took Jonah much more than a minute to prepare that sermon. In fact, on his way into Nineveh, probably stopped at the en route, went into the Tim Hortons, sat down, got himself a coffee, scratched this out on a napkin and then probably memorized it because it's just one line. It's so inadequate. Not a lot of effort went into this sermon prep. And several really important notes. And the reason why we're dissecting this is because it's, it's showing Jonah's heart. So notice this. If you're taking notes, I got three things here about this, this message. It shows Jonah's heart's just not in it. First thing, no sighting of divine authority at all. I mean, he doesn't even mention God. There's no mention of Yahweh at all. And, And you know, if you've read through the Old Testament, you know that as you're reading through the prophets, you'll often see the phrase just before they start preaching. They'll say, thus says the Lord. They want to be really clear. This isn't my message. This is from Yahweh. He's communicating to you through me. We're careful here at Harvest. We have this first pillar that we talk about, that we proclaim the authority of God's word without apology. We're not communicating God's word in any kind of authoritative way way that we think we have the authority. We're communicating the authority of God's word. The authority is in this book, not in us. It's not... Our authority, it's not what we have to say. It's not what we think is interesting. It's God's authority. It's Bible's open. It's look what God says. Jonah just doesn't do that. So no citing a divine authority. That's one major omission in this sermon. Secondly, no mention of why they're being judged. Just walks in and says 40 days and it's over. And again, the Old Testament prophets were careful to say, look, you sinned. This is why God's judgment's coming. You, you, you've committed idolatry. You've got idols all over the country. That's why you're being judged. You've committed sexual sin. You've oppressed minorities. You've failed to care for those on the margins. You love comfort and money more than God. The prophets always told them why. And Jonah just doesn't say why they're being judged. Every parent knows this. Never, 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 parents, never discipline your children without them knowing why they're being disciplined. That's two omissions. Here's the third one. No obvious presentation of hope. How awful would it be if our Sunday sermons here were just a presentation of how sinful you are without also presenting the hope of the gospel? Jonah has no obvious presentation of hope, no clear opportunity to repent, no salvation message at all. He doesn't even call on them to believe and make a change. And what's tragic about that is that God's heart is for sinners. It always has been. The Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, said this in 1 Timothy 2.4, God desires all people. God desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. God desires all people. Your difficult family member, your, your, your difficult neighbor, your lazy co-worker, your estranged spouse, your wayward son or daughter. God desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. If, if that's God's desire, that ought to be our desire. It should have been Jonah's desire. Even as he went to preach to Nineveh, it's almost like he wants them to be judged rather than to repent and embrace the God that he says he loves and worships. Now, the author who's writing Jonah, he knows this, and he's wanting to show. We've, we've talked about this book being satire. We've talked about Jonah being the anti-hero. We know it's filled with irony. And the author's showing us here the irony of Jonah preaching a message that's devoid of hope, and yet it presents hope in an unsuspecting way. Because he mentions 40 days. I mean, this isn't going to go down for 40 days. Now, that stands out. To anyone who's a student of the Word of God, we hear the word 40, we see 40 days, and we immediately think about some very specific Old Testament stories. And in fact, the author here wants us to think about Moses in a particular situation in the wilderness. After Israel had sinned. After they had fashioned a golden calf. God's ready to wipe everyone out. Start over again with Moses, the one faithful guy that he has. And rather than take that upon himself and say, fine, God, wipe them all out. Start with me. Start with my family. That'd be kind of cool. He spends instead 40 days in intense fasting and prayer, and he's interceding for the people, and he's pleading with God to relent. And God relents. And now we're hearing Jonah say 40 days and God's going to bring it down on the Ninevites. But Jonah's not interceding for them. He's not praying to God for him to relent. He didn't preach a complete message with any hope or salvation in it. To the reader, we hear 40 days and we rightly think there's a chance. There's a chance. Jonah refuses to consider that. His heart is simply not into it. And I can't emphasize enough how essential it is that your heart be engaged with the Lord and how utterly useless it is to simply practice religion. In fact, in so many different passages, and I'm going to give you these really fast, but in Mark 12.30, in Mark 12, 30, this is the great commandment. I was, I was listening to a podcast this week, an Acts 29 Canada podcast, talking to a man who wrote a book on discipleship, and he was asked the question, how do you, how, what's the simplest definition of what a disciple actually is? And he said, a disciple is someone, just the biblical cleanest definition, a, a, a disciple is someone who loves God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Heart is part of it. It's it's right there. In Revelation 2, 1 to 7, we have the first of the seven letters of the seven churches to, to the church in Ephesus. And they're commended for so many things that they're doing right. And then Jesus says to them, but I have this one thing against you. You've lost the love that you had at first. Their heart wasn't in it. They were doing all the things that a church does, but their heart wasn't in it anymore. And then two really critical passages from the Old Testament: Isaiah one 20 to, uh, two to twenty, and then Amos five twenty one to twenty four. And in those two passages, both of the prophets are communicating a word from God, where God says to the people. And I'm not going to exaggerate the word here. God says to the people through Isaiah, through Amos, He says, "I hate, I hate, I despise your worship." It's devastating. It was all things, all the things that are mentioned by the two prophets are all things that God had told them to do in worship. But he hated it. Why? Their heart wasn't in it. It's just religious ritual. It's not squaring with the totality of who they should have been in in God and Yahweh. So I... Like, I can't emphasize enough. It's so essential that your heart be engaged. And again, how utterly useless it is to simply practice religion. We want to be wholeheartedly devoted to God. And here's the, here's the final thing we need to see. Expect him to act in keeping with what he says. We should have this Expectation. And that expectation is consistent with who God is. What God says is always consistent with who God is. And we ask the question well, who is God? Because that's going to be important. What's his preeminent character quality? I mean, a lot of people would just say out of the gate, you know, he's holy. God is holy. And he is holy so holy in fact that His righteousness means that our sin has separated us from Him and we're His special creation. There's nothing like humanity. The animals are awesome, fun to be with, fun to engage with. They're they're incredible reflections of God's creativity and creation. But they're not His special creation. Only humanity had the very breath of God blown into us. So we have the Spirit of God. And yet we as His special creation separate it because of our sin, and that's put us under the condemnation of death, not only first death but second death, eternal separation from God. And so His holiness demands justice, it demands vindication, it demands judgment. And so often we default to this understanding of who God is. It's necessary, yes, in order for us to grasp our situation and for us to respond to the gospel. We have to start with his holiness and understand our condition. But something else about God compels his gospel, the good news. The holiness of God is the reality of our situation. But his love, and by the way, his love the grace and the mercy and the compassion and the kindness that flow from that. His love is what motivated the Father to send His one and only Son to rescue us. It's what compelled His Son to endure the cross and to escape the tomb. The Apostle John said in the midst of what is one of the most, if not the most difficult to read book in the entire Bible, First John. It, is so, it just seems so harsh in its demand of holy living. But John said this in the midst of this really challenging book. He said in 1 John 4, 8, God is love. God is love. We should expect God to act in love. We tend to expect God to act in judgment, but we should expect God to act in love. Jonah's expecting God to act in judgment, but then we have this plot twist in verse 5. The entire focus kind of moves off of Jonah, and it's on to the Ninevites, and it's on to their king, and it's on to what God's going to do for them. We have this incredibly descriptive section that focuses on the people of Nineveh's response to God. The people of Nineveh, verse 5 says, believed God. And this is heart belief. There's every indication that this was genuine repentance because God himself says so later, later on. And this is something, ironically, the people of Nineveh believe God, but ironically, Jonah is failing to show the same thing. Yet he's a prophet of God. This is initially the repentance of the Ninevites is is one of the ways that God initially rebukes this man whose compliance with God is half-hearted at best. So, the people themselves, they called for a fast and they put on sackcloth, and the greatest of them to the least. Everybody is engaged in repenting now before God. Historians, by the way, in, in terms of what was going on in Nineveh at the time, they suggest that there was internal pressure in Assyria as well as external political factors that, that made the Ninevites feel a, little bit, a bit vulnerable. They were primed for a message like this. There had been omens and signs, in fact, that are recorded that had occurred. And so they may have felt that judgment was indeed imminent for them. But no matter how it's explained, God was working to bring this about, not to mention that God was once again showing Israel, because they're the ones reading this book, he's showing his people, Israel, that his concern is not simply for the Jews. It's not simply for God's own chosen people but it's for the nations his intention was always to offer the the gentiles the cover of his salvation as well now verse six so the people are all repenting all over nineveh people are repenting the word reaches the king of nineveh now recall that jonah didn't even bother remember he only went about a third of the way in this is far enough i'm going to preach right here He didn't go all the way into Nineveh. He didn't go near the palace. He didn't go to the seat of power, but God's ensuring that the king hears. But how's he going to react? Well, he he arose from his throne. He removed his robe. He covered himself in sackcloth. He sat in ashes. He issued a proclamation. He published it all over the city. He said, "I I want everybody to take on this posture of repentance. I, I, I want to hedge all my bets. You better make your animals do it too. And he says, notice this uh, at verse 8, let them, let, him, let them call out mightily to God. Something, by the way, that Jonah did not do I mean, and, and here, here's the king of Nineveh. and he, he preaches a better sermon than Jonah preached. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. He calls out the sins specifically. That was especially one of the characteristics of Nineveh at that day. Was they were so cruel and so violent. And then he puts this unambiguous hope in front of them. Verse 9, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. But he makes no assumption that that's what's going to happen here. There's no, there's no indication here that if they repent, they are, they're definitely going to stay the hand of God. There's no hint of arrogance in the king. There's no presumption. It's heartfelt repentance for the sake of repentance. and Not to twist God's arm into him relenting. And that's what genuine conversion always looks like. When you turn to Jesus, you don't dictate the terms. It's like, God, I'm a sinner. I'm separated from you. I'm understanding this and seeing it with new eyes. It's the first time I've noticed I'm separated from you. I have no chance to ever make up the chasm that's between me and you. And I throw myself on your mercy and forgive my sin through the blood of Christ. That is our only recourse to be saved. What a stunning turn of events. That's exactly what they did and God heard them. Now listen, your conversion is the plot twist in the story of your life. I mean, in essence, in some ways, you're the king of Nineveh. You were under condemnation of sin. You were facing imminent judgment by God. And then the plot twist. You heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. You found out he died in your place. You you found out he was raised to new life. You knew there was hope in the resurrection. and You repented and found life in him. And were saved. And as those as Christians who have been commissioned by God to bring the good news to others, we should do so with the same expectation. We should look for God to act according to what he says and according to who he is. He's love. He wants to save your family members. He wants to save that friend. He wants to see coworkers that you see every week, every day in the workplace come to Christ. He's love. He has a heart for sinners. He wants them to be saved. Let's believe God will save. Because when God saw what they did, verse 10, look at it. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. I mean, this is genuine, heartfelt repentance. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do. He did not do it. That is the God of relentless mercy. That is what the God of second chances does. That's His heart, and that's the heart that we must have also. God wants His children to show wholehearted devotion, not half-hearted compliance to His Word. Let's pray together father you are as we said off the top you're so kind to us in providing us this opportunity to hear your word to do what it says to do what it says from our hearts and to believe you for the awesome things that you're going to do have hope and so god i'm so grateful that you have saved so many. I know there's probably some who are watching right now who do not yet have this relationship with Christ. And we would pray, God, knowing that you're God of love, that you want to save them, that you would save them right now. And for those of us, Father, who are already your children, God, I pray for any right now who are going through the motions, who are simply half-heartedly walking with Christ, God, I pray there would be a renewed commitment this morning Wholehearted devotion to Christ. So thank you, God, for hearing this prayer. Thank you for being patient with us and for working through your word again today. We pray this in Christ's name.